welcome to another episode of Divided State Citizens. I'm Michael Wilde. And I'm Henry Sun. And we are happy to be back. Henry, how you doing? I'm, I'm doing swell. Nice. It's good to be swell. Um, I'm fine, I think. I don't know. I've been looking at the news again, so I... You've you know, got to stop doing that, man. I, I can't get away from it. It's like the best reality show in the world without being great. Like, it's not <laughs> the best at all. It's just like, it has a bunch of ratings. Well, what's been sort of the main thing you've been seeing in the news? Well, there's a couple things that I think we should talk about. I think the first thing to, to address would be the shooting in Parkland. I know that, you know, my heart broke to see that news... Um, you know, I, I obviously send my thoughts and prayers to the families and the first responders, but also we're, we want to see some action now because right. how many more kids have to, have to die, um, in a, in a mass school shooting before something is done about it. So that's what we've been seeing lately. And it's very, very scary. It, it definitely is. I mean, looking at it, like Columbine happened when I was five. Yeah, 1999. This is still going on, and to me, that's just mind-blowing and, and terrible. for what? For what? The for, Second Amendment. Yeah. And it's not even, like, people want to hear it. It's just simple things. Like, this kid, because the person who did it was a kid, and I'll talk about that side of it in a bit, but he clearly shouldn't have ad- had access to a gun. He was a threat. People saw that. People were aware of that, yet he still had easy access. And that's where the bigger issue is, and I think that the communication has to somehow get through that we're not trying to take away their guns. I don't think we'll ever get through to them that we're not trying to take away all their guns. And I also, like, I've gotten to a place now where I've become so immune to school shootings that I now don't even like talking about the shooter. Yeah. Which I don't want to give him the time of day. What's great if there is anything great about this, was being able to see these kids, which they are, they're kids, who are trying to save their own lives now. Mm-hmm. Because what's happening is these high school kids are, are realizing that the adults in charge, and I'm using air quotes right now, I but the, see, but the, the adults in charge are not helping them and are not making them safe. So I can't imagine what it must feel like to be one of these kids who are now actively you know, trying to make some type of common sense gun control in our government, what it must feel like to realize that the, gover- the government and the adults that are in power are saying you're an afterthought, it's cool if you get killed in a mass shooting, only because we just want the peace of mind to know that we can have our, our assault rifles and our war guns that no citizen needs. We, you and I have spoken about that before. Right, no such thing as a protection rifle. It, it boggles my mind, Henry. Definitely. It boggles well, my mind. One thing, I, I know you said you don't want to give the, the kid who did this a light of day, but I do want to talk a little bit about him and what we see in response. And I think it's a little interesting and controversial for what I'm about to go into, but I want to address sort of the way we look at it. And I know that there's backlash to the fact that they focus on that he's a troubled youth. He had mental issues, and the fact that when you have like these black kids who get shot for doing nothing, literally doing nothing, that there's clearly this divide in how we interact with that. And I think that's totally right. Clearly there's something wrong with how we interact with minorities in this country, and go straight to violence, and that that doesn't happen to white people who create these acts. But I want to go a step further and look at how we're looking and how we're responding to him and when we have this pushback and, and the conversation focuses more on, well, they're just saying he's a troubled youth and that's bad because we don't give that same thing to minorities. And while that part's right, I think one thing that doesn't get said enough and people don't realize is what's the proper response to this? What should we be looking at for this kid? And I think it is that he was a troubled youth. And I think it is that you, he had all these issues. Because then we know to go the step further and be like, okay, the issue, it isn't really guns. Like, guns enables it, but the issue is the mental health, is the person. I think they can both be a problem. Right, they're both, and they, they're in tandem, and that is what we want to focus on. And while, yes, it's unfortunate that it's much easier to look at it and say, like, oh, because he's white, they're treating him with this sort of way, and they look at him, like, troubled, and try to, like, make him be more sympathetic. And I think that that's, to a degree, correct, but I want to always take that a bit step further, because to me, it's all about always improving and always being better. And... Where do we go wrong with this kid? What can we do better? I mean, 
if you notice, I haven't said his name and I won't because I don't believe in talking about them in name and, and putting a face to this person, but to learn from his experiences, to hear his history and see what we can do to improve so that no one else who's in his shoes, because people will be in his shoes. That's going to happen. What can we do to make sure that this doesn't happen in the future? Guns is a part of that, but the mental health is the next part. Yeah, I think uh, a couple things. Uh, one being, this would be a totally different conversation, a completely separate narrative, if he was Muslim. Yeah. This We wouldn't be having the same conversation we're having now. The, the talking points from the far right would be, you know, we could be in a war. Who knows what would right. have happened? So... Yes, I agree with we need to figure out how to now, since this is normal, apparently, mm-hmm. it's, it, we can't keep saying, like, we can't let this become normal. It's normal already. Um, we now need to recalibrate and figure out how to tackle these things. I still, and I hear what you're saying, and I do agree with you to an extent, I definitely think that while mental illness is a huge issue in our country, we need to address it, and we need to make sure that we are using all of our resources that we have as a country to make sure things like this don't happen as a result of mental illness. I still really feel like, you know, the guns are the issue. Like, if he had a knife, I don't think he would have been able to kill 17 people, right? Definitely, but he still would have been able to kill one or two. So, while guns enable, but... It's still the person who has to pull the trigger. Sure. And that's where I see it's, it should be tackled from two fronts. And I think you can put a Band-Aid on it, but in the end, we want to still combat the larger issue yeah. as well. And here, and, and I agree with you, so I think the only part that I am kind of veering off is mental illness, totally, we should tackle it. But right now, those kids oh, don't want to talk about mental illness. They want gun control, like, yesterday. So right now... Priority would be gun re- gun control and gun reform and doing whatever they can to, you know, stamp out this immediate issue, which right now is guns. Agreed, and I think that guns is probably the easier issue to immediately address. Right. Just where I see it is in that point of what's the proper way to look at the kid who committed these crimes. And there has to be a way, and there has to be a way for us to learn. And I think that we get, our society gets so caught up in the backlash of how we responded to it, that we don't think that maybe it was in ways partially right and sympathizing isn't always the worst thing in order to learn and get better. Meanwhile, the proper response to someone who was shot for just playing in the park is complete outrage and that this was ridiculous and he should never have been put in that situation. Yeah. But in the end, we still need to respond to the person who committed the acts, not just the acts themselves. Sure. Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, mm-hmm. um, I follow him. He's great, and I really respect him a lot. He is very vocal on Twitter and was following these kids from Parkland who are speaking up, which we'll talk about in a second. And he he t- retweeted a photo of this sea of students who are you know marching and standing up for their lives, essentially. And he made a comment that said, something's happening, look around. And it like sent goosebumps over my body because you can feel something happening. Right. Like, people are pissed. Um, the adults aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're not saving our children's lives. So now the children are having to stand up and save their own lives. That is unimaginable that that's where we're at, but it's happening. It's super inspiring to see these kids stand up for themselves and know that they can be the change they want to see in the world. And I know that's very, you know, wax poetic, uh, but it's super inspiring. Definitely. It's, it's, it's I, I can't wait. <laughs> and just to pivot, let's talk more about some of those uh, adults who are doing nothing in the room. Uh, and even more important, the guy who's investigating them all. Mm. Our favorite man, Robert Mueller. How you doing, Bob? Uh, so for those of you who don't know, he recently indicted 13 uh, people in the Russia investigation. Michael, you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, breaking news. They did it. Uh, <laughs> no more questions there. They meddled. Um, this is something we all knew, but I guess we can't say that because, you know, innocent until proven guilty in this country. Um, so the news came out. The most shocking part, and I guess it wasn't that shocking, was Trump's immediate, we didn't do it. You know, he was blaming this person, the other person. He was trying to divert people's attention away. He was being everything that we hate about him. Um, regardless. So him? Yeah, he was being him. 
what happened is 13 Russian nationals were indicted. Uh, and uh, the gist of it, from what I've seen in the news, is that there was a Russian troll farm where they were pushing... Not, uh, so, like, they farm trolls? Yes. Oh, okay. Correct. Like, you know, self-sustainability, things like that. Um, they were pushing false information in battleground states. So I know Colorado was, like, a big state where they were trying to push misinformation. I know Jill Stein became a big deal in it because she got you know, a spike in votes that people, they couldn't explain, really. Um, And so they're saying that that could have swayed the election. They don't, they haven't really addressed the collusion part of it, which is the truth. Right, we still don't know if there was collusion, but we know that Russia meddled. So so meddling in in the election and collusion are two separate entities right now. We, you know, General McMaster, who is, you know, Trump's dude, who's very well respected across the aisle, said it is... It is no longer okay to say, or it's not no longer okay, but you can't say that they didn't meddle because the evidence is incontrovertible. Um, so knowing what we know now, it may be easier to prove collusion. Um, I know that you've been reading a lot about the Manafort who's already been indicted and the ramifications of that, but and, we're getting... Gates flipping in what reports are coming out saying that he's most likely now working considering the change in his lawyers. People are dropping like f- like flies. I think people are starting to sweat a lot. One, one trend that we've seen with this administration is when things start to happen, whether that be Mueller starts to get closer to something, that's when crazy stuff starts to happen. So they have this diversion where they try and it's like this chaos theory almost where you throw everything up in the air and then you, you make sure that people aren't paying attention so that they forget about what's really important. Um, and they, they happen, I will say, they happen to be very good at that. I think I've talked about this in the past when one of the biggest moments to me in the whole investigation was a Senate testimony last June with Bill Browder. And that was the same day as the trans tweet from Trump. And it's yeah. when you connect these dots and you, look, you take a step back and you look at what big things Trump has announced that seem to come out of left field, there's always something else that should have made the news that day that just didn't get there because of what he did. And you're talking about the tweet that said that he had spoken with his generals and his his senior counsel and decided that transgender people will no longer be allowed to serve in the military. Now, I actually read an article recently by the chief joint of staff um, for the Mm -hmm. Secretary of Defense who said that he was never... In, in the know about that. So he found out about that when everyone else did. So that's a lie. Uh, <laughs> Trump did not discuss with his generals. Uh, but a perfect example of trying to make people confused and, you know, get them talking about something else. And you know what? Back to him being good at it, it worked. Because everyone went nuts, as they should have. But people s- stopped thinking about what was, I think, most, not most important, but More. at the time... They were deflected, and it worked. Definitely. Well, that's been a, a lot on sort of Mueller and gun violence in this country and shooting, and unfortunately, I don't think that this is a topic that's going to stop here, and unfortunately, those are both things that are going to continue going on. I think I'm looking forward to Mueller will, hopefully, we'll get some more nice developments there. I'm looking forward to all the films that come out afterwards about this, and I think, honestly, that feels like it's going to wrap up faster than the gun violence in this country considering how long it's been going on. But I definitely feel like there's been steps in the right direction for making progress with both. Definitely. And it's certainly not a conversation that will be quick. I think this is, we're now embarking on a very interesting time in, in our culture as, as Americans. I'm really looking forward to seeing what these kids can do and, and inspire by speaking truth to power. Uh, and... I, I am hopeful because, you know, we're going to be talking to our good friend Vern Tremble soon, mm-hmm. who will be here and will be stopping by, and, and I know that he lives his life very much uh, through the, the lens of having hope and um, being kind and leading with empathy, and I think right now when things are so bleak is the, the time that you need to be most hopeful and, and lean all the way in and give all of yourself to the fight uh, because that's how we see change. We saw it with the Civil Rights Movement. Um, and uh, we'll see it again. Definitely. With that, I guess we'll go in and, and start speaking with Vern next. Um, like, we want to tell us a little bit about Vern. Sure, yeah. Um, Vern is a really good friend of ours. Um, known him for a while. He's 29 years old from Savannah, Georgia. He is a professional encourager and 
happens to be one of the best and kindest people that I know. Um, he is a great musician. You can actually check his music out on his website. It's www.verntremble.com, V-E-R-N-T-R-E-M-B-L-E.com. Um, and he currently works in marketing at Yext, um, is just a freaking ray of sunshine, and uh, really excited to talk to him next, so stick around. This episode of Divided States Citizens is brought to you by Life. And we're joined by my good friend, Bern Treble. Bern, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me, Michael. Been waiting a long time to have you on the podcast, so we really appreciate it. How's it going? Everything is going well, man. I, I just realized that I haven't actually spoken to you in a while. It's been some time. Like, we used to speak all the time. Yeah. But, you know, after, you know, things moved and things happened in your life, you don't get the opportunity to speak with your, your brother as frequently as you would like. You're recently engaged. Congrats. Thank you, sir. So you, Most you've beautiful been a little woman busy. In the world. Yeah, that's my... I get it. Yeah. I'm not offended. <laughs> I met her. She's lovely. That's great. She's I, I was nervous. Only the best for her. Yeah. yeah. No, I made sure, but I passed on. It was excellent. <laughs> so congrats on that. Thank you. We want to ask you a lot of questions because if you're listening at home, Vern is, I think, one of the kindest people that I've ever met. <laughs> So and I'm not, like, kissing up right now. I think it's impossible for Vern to be anything other than kind. So oh, wow. I want to hear, I know, it's a lot of pressure, and I hope you feel it. <laughs> uh, but I want to hear your take on a lot of things that Henry and I talk about on, on the podcast and uh, somehow work to just hear your take and run with it. So Sounds fun. Yeah. Let's do it. It'll be a blast. Yeah. Jump right in. One One theme that I know that we were talking about a little earlier that just is a huge umbrella is representation. Yeah. Right? I know that this past weekend I saw Black Panther Mm -hmm. in theaters. Mm -hmm. I know that obviously representation is a big buzzword when, you know, you're talking about Black Panther. Yeah. Um, What are your initial thoughts on the movie? I obviously loved it. Mm -hmm. Um, What is the the bigger significance there? I, too, love the movie. It was, um, it's a cultural phenomenon that will, position itself within the zeitgeist as like being like a pivotal point in African-American and black history. Um, and the reason why that's the case is like there's no time in history when you think about Hollywood have we seen a cast and a crew and a director of African-American or black descent have an opportunity to paint a, a mythical story for youth that can that is designed to inspire the what if or the greater or showcase us in such a way that removes us from the the horrors and the terror of the transatlantic slave trade and what happened after that, the segregation and, and Jim Crow. So to see that on screen as an adult and to think about the, the children and the kids, uh, the minority children, specifically black and African-American, I just want to be clear about that, is so exciting and important. And I think the the reverberation of this much like the election of President Obama like several years ago, will be felt for decades to come. Like this is like this, like some people think, oh, it's just a, a superhero movie. Yeah, sure, it's a superhero movie. But it's like when you live in a society where you've never seen something or experienced seeing yourself in such a heightened way, it can, it can be transformative. And I think it's way more than just a movie. It's way more than just a movie. Definitely. I'm also glad you brought up the Obama fact because yeah. I'm looking forward to uh, I loved Black Panther replacing the oh I voted for Obama <laughs> for all the right oh, people. So it's been a few years of that. Yeah, that was a great meme. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, it's definitely great. And I one thing I personally thought was really interesting is how they didn't whitewash the history mm-hmm. and like they showed the complexities of as you said the trade the slave trade mm-hmm. and all of that and they put that in to one of the biggest movies to come out in yeah. this year and. Considering history in class, like we learn a little bit about it, but you don't yeah. really see the impact and hear the impact. And mm-hmm. I think, in they did it in such a fun way that yeah. like you understood the struggles and the pain, mm-hmm. but it still like left with a smile on your face. Yeah, it's a conflicting story because you think like seeing that movie allowed you to see Africa as if Africa had been left alone. As no spoilers. It, sure, oh, <laughs> sure, sure. Okay, that's fair. So I'll say this. Because of the movie, and because of the way that they, when you think about the political aspect of it, when you think about the, the representation aspect, it will, again, inspire people and make people think and create a conversation that we've, we haven't been having in, in this country. 
and frankly, in this in the entire world, like the movie yeah. has done like half a billion dollars in sales. Like it broke all it expectations. Just, just came out. It just came out, and like those themes, what we're saying, we live in America. Like we understand more so, possibly more so than any other country, like the ramifications of slavery and segregation and Jim Crow. But then to see how they position the characters in that movie, and then represent that and promote that out and share it with the rest of the world for us, for them to see this story being told the way it's being told, it's like, it really makes you proud. Because it's like, yes, let's begin the conversation. This is a great way to start it. I love that. And, you know, I am very excited personally Mm -hmm. because I think looking at any marginalized group in society, looking at representation as a concept, you know, you're being told essentially that you can do this, what mm-hmm. you're seeing. Yeah. So I'm excited that this movie was am- as amazing as it was and is mm-hmm. being as successful as it is. Can I can I share like that? I'm sorry to cut you of off, but like you said, you can be that. I think the movie goes a little a step further. I think it literally says you are this mm-hmm. for a lot of people. Yeah. For a lot of people, at least that was that's what I took from it. Totally. And, yeah. And that I always think, and you mentioned this, but I always think of the younger generations yeah. who are watching this because I remember growing up thinking maybe I can, not yeah. thinking, oh, I am. But you almost get the affirmation that we did it, you're mm. going to do it, you're yeah. going to be great. I'm so excited to see these younger generations who have ignited that spark mm-hmm. by this story. And someone who saw this movie, some little black kid somewhere in America yeah. is going to grow up and... Mm-hmm. More than one black kid, but yeah, you know, <laughs> but like one specifically that I'm talking about right now is going to grow up and like make another amazing movie that's going to make like half a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. So, representation definitely like it's important because it just means so much more than just a movie. It's so important, Michael. It's it's beyond important. I'm blessed in the fact that I had that I have parents that, despite you know who I am and what I represent. To society, I'm six foot six, black guy. I repeat, six foot six. I uh, love music. I love arts, entertainment. I went to school, studied opera. You know, moved to New York City, did all that fun stuff. Uh, But at every turn in my life, my parents are always there, saying, "Of course you can do that. Go ahead and do it. Go ahead and try." A lot of people don't have that. So when you look at a movie, again, back to Black Panther, when you look at a movie like Black Panther that's blatantly telling you, you are this, you can be this, you can do this, it's, it's vindicating because like, ah, I had parents that did that for me. But for those that may not have had that, the art inspires that. And what's been so frustrating, what I know for many minorities in this country for years, is that when you take an institution like Hollywood and, you know, when, the, when they have the hashtag Oscar so white, hashtag Oscar so white, like it's it's again that that plea that cries like we need to be represented because when when there's a lack of representation there is a lack of of hope there's a lack of being able to realize and internalize what it is that you can become art influences that art influences reality i can't stress that as i can't stress that enough you can pretend that, you know, you know, just go to college. Send your kids to college, they'll be fine. When you think about, like, the African-American community, when you think about minority communities, especially in the United States, it's this idea of, like, well, how do I gain exposure to these opportunities? I don't know what it looks like, per se, to be, to work, you know, in a tech company, for instance. I don't know what it means to be uh, a director of a, of, of a multi-billion dollar production, Crowson production, like Ryan Coogler is for Black Panther. Like, how do, how do you get that? You know, you either, one, have uh, a strong team of people that have been successful that can motivate and inspire you to get there, or you see it represented by people that have gotten there that are willing to reach back and say, you can be this. Because but, I was you once. Because I was look, you once. Look at the space that I'm in right now. Exactly. It's so important. Wow. Yeah. I'm excited to see what comes. Me too. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the fact of how it's like looking back and how people have to really work hard to get there. Yeah. Uh, and one thing I, I want to talk to you, as you said, you're six six black yeah. man. You are a, one of the largest people in the room. <laughs> All the time. Like, there's never going to be anyone that's surpassing you in height unless you're... So, but you, so you always have this presence. And I, and I think, and one thing you, you hear about and you see is 
that with black people, especially large black men, is that they have this sort of stigma attached. And I'm, I'm just curious, how have you felt that just being a six foot six black man has sort of affected and changed the way that you grew up and started working in tech as opposed to where Michael and I sort of experienced? Sure. So, like, it wasn't always my dream to work in tech. Like, I started off, in, again, in arts and entertainment, and even that was you know, quite different from what people expected of me. I always get characterized like, what do you do? Do you play basketball? Do you play football? No, I play neither. I don't <laughs> I don't do that, you know? And it's not a bad thing. Like, there are many people that are successful, that are extremely intelligent and just amazing people that are in athletics, that are in sports. But I don't do that. But then, like, that is a, a characterization, a generalization that people have of someone of my look and size and you know, whatever they, they deem to, whatever they choose to classify me as. The problem is, like, when you think about how we are judged before someone knows who you are, you have to remember that the issue is not with me. The, like, when you think of someone, that, like, with mental illness, when you think of someone that is suffering from something and not to, not to speak ill of those that suffer from mental illness, but you, often, you have to realize that a lot of times those people suffer with those, those demons internally. And they often project those things out into reality. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you see someone in the street, you're like, well, why is this person flailing? Or is they're speaking? It's like, what's going on? What's wrong with them? Like, it's in their mind. The same exists for a person that is racist or uh, bigoted or misogynistic. It's, it doesn't, the fault doesn't lie with the person that they're judging. It doesn't lie with the, the six foot six black, black man. It doesn't <laughs> lie with the, the woman. It doesn't lie with, you know, the, the gay or lesbian person. It doesn't. It falls with the person that is suffering from the condition that is bigotry and racism and misogyny, you know? Yeah. So for me, when I think about that, when I think about that question, I like to start with it from there. So the problem doesn't fall with me. I can look in the mirror and say I'm happy, I'm comfortable, I'm pleased with myself. So when you interact with those people... And especially when you have to interact with those people all the time, how do you allow them to, or how do you not allow them to affect your spirit, your person negatively? And what I have done and what many people have done, and we can, I know we, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, you have a, a, a tool bag, you have a toolbox of coping me mechanisms that allow you to exist in a world that characterizes you and mislabels you before they actually know you. And you allow that to be your shield. Now, within your toolbox, you'll be able to pull out that shield. And what exists, in, you know, I don't know how a toolbox and a shield go together. They don't, but follow me if you will. Sounds, <laughs> sounds correct to me. It sounds like the toolbox I want to have. Right. Honestly, Vern, just talk. I'm loving all that. <laughs> so in that, in that toolbox, you'll have things like code switching. Some people are familiar with that term. Code switching is the ability to, like, you know, and, and want with one group of people, I'm able to have this, use this certain dialect and have this type of conversation and speak candidly and openly. And with another group of people, I have uh, a more professional tone or use a certain type of language that is representative of the environment that I'm in. So you're with your buddies. Like, for me, I'm from the South. They have this dialect. It's called Geechee Gullah. It's like, it's like, People would say it's like slang. It's not really slang. People would say it's ebonics. It's not ebonics. It's just a way of speaking. It's like a colloquialism. Does it sound like? I can't really do it because you can only kind of do it with like people that are also speaking it. So like you go back and forth right. with it. It's like just broken. Like it's like a broken vernacular where it's like, you, I, I don't know. I really can't say it off the top. <laughs> I'll think about it. Yeah, I'll Google it. <laughs> yeah. But it's like I'm able to have those conversations with like family members or friends and like that's that. Uh, but with other, like in a professional setting, like you can't do that. I can't speak. I could, but I don't. I choose not to. And a part of that is that coping mechanism to disallow you to be afraid of me. I have to arm myself with the tools of code twitching to stop you from judging me. To disallow you from judging me, I have to arm myself instead of you having a straight face or, you know, just a resting face of, you know, of you know no particular mood I have to instead smile and like flash my pearly whites because they often save me in a lot of situations it does work very well for you <laughs> <laughs> but people but like it's that it's the, it's a thing like you and you often often see it represented in, in films just to kind of like this kind of seem like this is a theme yeah. when you think about films and you think of like some like great 
characters within films that are African-American, specifically men, you have a representation of, like, uh, thugs or, like, the the monster or the aggressor, um, often, like, angry, you know, straight-faced, you know, that's just, like, the, the, the typecast, the stereotype. And then you often have those that are the, the magic black man that mm-hmm. saves the day, that it has a smile, that is super wise and super knowledgeable, you know? And so you kind of find yourself, like, feeling on the inside like the stereotype of like the guy that's like that just wants to be left alone that just wants to exist and the guy that has to be the guy that is the most knowledgeable and the most wise and the most articulate in order to survive to fit into the the environment that has been created again partly by the media that represents you know that tries to represent who we are definitely and i really like that sort of analogy the way you looked at it and i think taking that and be talking about like the black man has to be the wisest. I think yeah. looking at Obama and Trump. Yeah. It's you, you, you see that right there yeah. where Obama was one of the best people our society could offer. He was a genius. Yeah. He was top of his class, extremely accomplished right. and Trump is Trump. And right. I think that that really Who? yeah, Trump, sorry, you familiar? No, I wish. But it really epitomizes that exact feeling um, and so yeah. just off that, do you feel like you've had to work so much harder in your life just to accomplish what like I may have accomplished with half as much effort? I can never truly say like what is involved in you achieving your success. Great point. I can't allow myself to do that because that would be ignorant. But what I can say for myself and knowing myself, I have told myself that I have to work to a certain degree to be as exceptional as I possibly can be to be where I am. Now that's a different like revelation that that I have as compared as opposed to what you have, where I would imagine you're like, you don't even think about that. You just do. Yeah, I, I for me, just to sort of give my experience, I and anyone who knows me well will verify this, live under the assumption that's just gonna work out. Yeah. And I kind of just do what's gonna do and I, and it has so far. Mm-hmm. And I'm aware a lot of that is my privilege and a mm-hmm. lot of that is that I come from a somewhat wealthy background, suburbs of New York City, just mm-hmm. always had access and opportunity. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I can just sort of do. And a lot of people, specifically mm-hmm. minorities, don't have that ability and have mm-hmm. to work significantly harder. Their parents have to work harder to give them the same access that I was just kind of born with. Mm-hmm. Now, what's funny is I fall in an interesting in-between where it's like I am a minority, I am an African-American man, mm-hmm. but I understand what you're talking about because I don't know something that we've we've I've never probably never told you about like when I was growing up um, all the way back in elementary school I was one of let's say one to three three black ki- black boys in my elementary school class from grades from kindergarten through fifth grade Didn't know that. so the foundation of my education was in a similar environment that I am in now so it's like being being a kid and not really similar to you know, you guys are telling me about Michael Peralta. He was on mm-hmm. previous mm-hmm. podcast, not knowing that you were something that you weren't. So you just see yourself as a child for a really long time. And my parents weren't the type to push race on us. We just, we, for the most part, existed and we had conversations about how to, you know, the right and wrong thing, you know, how to do the right thing and how not to do the wrong things. So, you know, you you, you find yourself as this, this black kid class full of white kids, mostly white kids, a few um, Middle Eastern and um, Hispanic, uh, but most predominant, like 95% white. And you realize exactly what you're saying. Whereas for many of those children, and as a child yourself, you realize like, ah, man, like this kid is just like kind of just breezing through, like out of care, care in the world. You don't realize that from kindergarten through Second grade, and speaking of my experience, but then like by the time you hit third grade, you start to pick up on some of those cues. You're like, hmm, something seems different about the interaction that I had with this person as opposed as compared to the person that the the interaction that my classmate had with the same person, you know. And it starts to teach you. So then, when you you know, I moved from there to a predominantly African American black minority middle school, you realize the. The, the difference, and it was stark. Because while I was like an average student in elementary school, I was the top student in middle school. Now, does, does it have necessarily something to do with, you know, the education that I received 
you know, my formative education before I moved to the next school? Does it have anything to do with the race of people, or the race of the kids that were at the middle school? No. But what it did have a lot to do with is the strength that my parents instilled in me as I was going with, between those two worlds, where at the elementary school, I had to get the encouragement and the, the positive affirmation from my mother and from my father, like, you're, you're, you're excellent. You, 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 write, you write a book, draw a picture, play an instrument. And I did all of those things. Like, I was a renaissance man in elementary school <laughs> trying to do everything. I still find myself trying to do everything now, which can sometimes be a detriment, a hindrance to progress. And that's something we can talk about later, I, I suppose. Yeah. But um, going into middle school, realizing, like, um, you can be exceptional. And you can be affirmed and you can be rewarded by your uh, by your teachers and by you know people that you look up to and admire as being someone that is capable of doing all things as opposed to a kid that's capable of you know you can do this no you can do all things and that stayed with me throughout the rest of my life until the point where it's like I'm here now I moved to New York City not to do tech and marketing but I found myself here because I believe in the principle of if one person is able to do it, if you're able to think it and do it, I sure as hell know that I can figure it out and do it too. Yeah, and your story isn't over. Like, oh, no, no. You no, know, it's just starting. I'm not trying to speak in like... Yeah. Like, like you've got... You know, in terms. We all know you've got, quite, <laughs> you've got quite the epic in front of you. Uh, but I do want to unpack that a little bit, just you know, the story of you growing up, because yeah. one thing you and I do have in common mm-hmm. is not height, but we both grew up in Georgia. Yeah. So I'm from Marietta, Georgia. You're from Savannah, Georgia. That's right. Um, one thing that I can't help but ask, mm-hmm. you know, having grown up in Georgia, um, I don't know, again, what your experience was um, with racism, if you even saw outright racism, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering, because I do know you so well personally, if anything that you remember growing up from living in Georgia, mm-hmm. whether that be an experience you had or hearing something or communication with someone, how did you get to where you are now and be the person you are now and not be bitter and not have that um, kind of underdog thing about you? You yeah. kind of don't have any strings. You you just explained perfectly that you want to impress yourself. You want to be the best you can be for yourself, mm-hmm. not for anyone else. So how did you elevate yourself to this point where, you know, the stains of racism that, that are often associated with the South and yeah. within the Bible Belt, how did that not turn you into maybe the discouraged mm-hmm. black man? Yeah, absolutely. Religion, mm-hmm. specifically faith, because there are some negative connotations with religion, but I say religion as a general term for people to understand. And when you think about religion of the South, it's a Christian faith. And I can say that just with all assurance that the teachings of my parents, specifically my mother, that had me in church from like a little kid all the way until an adult, allowed me to handle the difficulties and the racism and the the anger that I otherwise should have had that most African-American men succumb to. This idea of, I'm not good enough. The society has, uh, has cast me to the side. They don't support me. They see me as a villain. Or the society is not for me. Or the society is not for me. I simply don't fit. But what I was given by my mother and by my grandmothers was this sense of community and hope. You know, and I know a lot of times people don't, we were talking about this earlier, people, you know, like when you look at the current political climate and you think about like what, you know, the evangelical right has kind of done to the, the term or the, the foundations of, of Christianity, it's like it's, it's offsetting, it's off-putting. You know, I'm just going to be straight up because like this is our opportunity to do it. I don't care. Uh, but when you think about like what it actually is for a lot of people, when you think about like the religion for uh, the slaves that were brought here, the African people that were brought here to this country, being pulled away from their religion, forced to adopt a new religion and a new faith, but then being able to find strength in um, the uh, the colonizer's religion is a testament to the faith element that I'm speaking about, that even though it's umbrellaed by Christianity, there's an internal faith, there's an internal heartbeat and a power that, here in America, African-American and black people have found within Christianity, but have, ex- have been able to grow and cultivate 
by way of faith. And what faith teaches us is that there is always hope, that there is always strength. You can always overcome. You can always do better, even when you're at your lowest, at your darkest, at your most depressed. Resilience. The resilience, essentially. And you can. And here's the thing. I'm gonna be honest with you. You can learn that from just about anywhere. You know, I've done my research. I've looked all around the world. You see people in many other religions that believe so many different things, and they're great people. But I happen to be born Vern Trimble in Savannah, Georgia. Lucky. You know, <laughs> in Savannah, Georgia, and. The things that my parents could give me was a faith and belief in God, and that has that is truly what's been what has enabled me to always rise above the tide. Now, there's a difference between being that type of person that says like you have to believe what I believe, and if you don't believe what I believe, I don't like you. I don't want to speak with you. I don't believe in that because I'm a, a lover of people. Like I just I love people. I love conversation. I don't care who you are. I'm willing and ready to talk to you and to engage with you to learn more about the human condition, to learn more about you and your circumstances because it makes me better. Uh, but from that, I always hope that there's this piece of myself, almost like you you take like you have a, like a bank, like you've deposited within yourself like this unli- this unlimited amount of like funds that you are able to remove from yourself and give to others a piece of yourself to encourage them to give them a light they might not have necessarily had to move them throughout their day and throughout the rest of their life. And hopefully a piece of yourself stays with that person and encourages them to be better, to do better, to believe more, to have faith. That's honestly, truly what has carried me to this point. Because without that, I would have easily succumbed. I would have gone home. I would have gone home. When I first moved to New York City, I didn't know where I was going to live. I moved here with my sister that. Yeah, and we, we just had faith that something would work out. And within two days, we were able to find an apartment uh, by way of my grandmother and my uncle that helped us out and said, you know, you guys made the commitment to be here. We didn't tell them that we were going to move here. We were just like, we're just going to go. But they pulled, like, but they found out, and we prayed, and we had faith, and then they worked it out. So we didn't have to get back on a train and turn go straight back to Savannah. And I think everything happens for a reason. Yeah. I, I tr- like, and so, the reason was to lead you right to this interview. <laughs> I believe. I mean, I'm going to get right to the point. <laughs> Based on what you just said about religion and, and faith, I 100% agree with, and I was actually trying to think about, well, what's my faith? Yeah. Because I, I believe that religion, and you said this right at the beginning, religion is the word, mm-hmm. but religion can mean something different for everyone. Right. So it's like, what do you believe in? And I just have to say, on top of that, when you were saying that you, I really like what you said about the bank and, and you know, mm-hmm. depositing and giving this unlimited amount, I actually, I've always known how much you've meant to me personally, mm-hmm. but now I'm thinking about actually having gotten the chance to work with you so closely and sit so close to you at at work, whereas every day we would interact and talk, and you were very much the light in in our days. I can confidently speak for everyone else because everyone feels the same way, (laughs) but you were very much, like, you're putting your money where your mouth is because when you spoke about that, I literally just saw my entire journey when you were over on that side of the office and how, you know, any conversation with you, anything at all was just positive, and if someone was in a bad mood and they had an interaction with you, they weren't in a bad mood anymore. So you, you know, you're you're talking the talk, you're walking the walk. I think that is super important, especially now, because a lot of people are stuck in their own bubble yeah. and are wrapped up in their insecurities and things that are going wrong. And people are very quick to throw in the towel or complain or think they have it so bad. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if I've ever heard you complain. And you don't have to own up to complaining because just leave it there. Sure. But, but it's so important. If you don't have a Vern in your life, my point is you should find one. And we've spoken about this on another podcast, but you got to follow the light, Definitely. you know, because there are people that hold the light. And for us, people that are trying to better themselves and self-actualize – our jobs every day should be surrounding ourselves with people who do hold the light. Mm-hmm. And I consider you one of those people, I think the standout person in my head. Um, so it's just, That's kind you know, of I know it, I know it's made me better by knowing you. Wow. So it's, 
find find you a burn. So. I don't take that lightly. I want to piggyback on that and sort of pivot at the same time. Mm-hmm. Looking at the fact that, as you said, you are the sort of light, and it's, you always have this positive way to talk, and I mean, anyone who's listening now can definitely hear that, and, and, and they can definitely experience that. And going to what you said, too, about how with religion, how you have the evangelical right that sort of overtook what religion, like the good part of religion to you and the faith that, that mm-hmm. you enjoy and sort of has the stigma attached to it. Yeah. So looking at that and sort of thinking in the idea of talking and conversing with people who disagree with you and sort of and trying to find that light, what do you think would be best to share with people who you find are sort of adding this negative effect to religion or are leading this country or this world even in not the best way because they just don't fully get it? How would you find that you'd want to communicate with people like that? Uh, the same way I would communicate with anyone. The same exact way. And that way would be understanding that everyone has their has a certain amount of fear and worry and concern for their well-being and their family and what they hold dear and being able to have empathy for them because it's not in my it's not in my position to hate them because then I would be a hypocrite but it's like I can at least because we all are the same. Like, we all are made up of the same things. Neil deGrasse Tyson says, like, <laughs> we're all made up of star, star dust, star matter. Like, we're all the same thing, you know? Like, it's, it's as soon as we see or allow ourselves to see the similarities rather than the differences that your heart opens up. Exactly. Maybe. It's, it's finding that connectivity. And once you find that connectivity, you're able to say, like, we are... Like, if I'm speaking to a little old well, white lady from Gary, Indiana, and she's, like, 82 years old, like, I would have so much love for, for her in my heart because, one, I love grandmas. Same. They're the best. I oh, love grandmas. God. So whether she's a black grandma or a white grandma or a Native American she's grandma, a grandma, she's still a grandma. She, has, she, she raised children. She raised a family. You know, she's trying to do her best. She's trying to survive. Like, that level of empathy will always be there. But then it's understanding, like, I have my certain... I have hang-ups. How dare I judge you for your hang-ups or for your lack of, your ignorance or for your lack of understanding because there's something that has led you to believe what it is that you believe. Now, it's not my job to rationalize that for you, but I still have to treat you with respect and decency. Now, I don't have to be a fool and like give of myself entirely until I'm unable to take care of myself and my own family, but I can, on the most basic level, reach into that bank Pull out a de- take out a deposit and infuse it into that person and give it to that person as an opportunity to say, as an act of goodwill, it's like, I hear you, I understand you to be a person who is scared, who may be struggling, or who needs attention. Because for most people, no matter who they are, where they come from, they just want to know that they're being heard. Period. So you would call yourself a walking ATM? Sure, why not? (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Wow. Well, Vern, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing sort of the way that you've lived and look at life. It's definitely been eye-opening. I hope more more people really take that approach and reflect and realize that a lot of the anger in the world isn't towards them, but is within the other people and how to sort of deal with that and Mm -hmm. approach that. So definitely very wise and interesting to think about. So thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to be more mindful of of leading with empathy. You should. Thank you for your example. Mm -hmm. And I'll I'll say this one thing, guys. You guys are doing a a tremendous job. Um, I have high hopes and high expectations for the things you do, but like everything, it starts somewhere, and you guys have made a start. And with that start, you have the opportunity to grow it and water it until it flourishes and grows into a huge oak tree. (laughs) Oh my God, I'll take it. You know? We'll be an oak. (laughs) You'll be an oak, but seriously, like you have, because what will end up happening is your your tree will then be able to to grow branches that will cast shade on a lot of people's uh, pain and suffering to block them from the sun and the misery that is the current uh, political, politicized world that we live in right now. So continue to do this. Pretty bleak. Yeah, it's bleak. But it's bleak. But if you grow into that oak, like I like I just suggested, like you're gonna help a lot of people. People are gonna listen to this. People that might not have ever tried to hear this point of view before, they're gonna say like, I I hear that. I get it. I feel it. 
Wow, you're going to have to wheel me out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Vern Tremble, everybody. www.verntremble.com. Check right. out his music. Thank you, Vern. Thanks. Right, thanks for having me, guys. This episode of Divided State Citizens is brought to you by Black Panther. You have any uh, funny jokes from Black Panther, Henry? Uh, yeah, I might. Like Wakanda jokes. And we're back with our favorite section, positive points. Points, points, points. Positive points. We talk about a lot of sometimes very sad things. So Very we, serious things. Very serious things. And we're not serious. We need to make it a little bit more vibrant in here. So that's why we love positive points so much. So we're going to look at the news. We're looking at things that are positive happening around the country and talking about it so that we can release some of that serotonin. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I, I know what you're saying. Know you what know what saying. I'm putting down. Um, one really cool thing that happened uh, as a result of, God, I can't say cool, and as a result of this school shooting, but with this school shooting in Parkland, Florida, uh, what we've seen is we've seen this you know, resurgence of these high school kids who are coming into this national spotlight of, of reform. And we have seen a couple of notable people enter George Clooney and his wife Amal, who actually donated $500,000 to these kids who are leading this fight for gun control. And what happened as a result of George Clooney and Amal stepping forward was one of my favorite people, Oprah, Miss Oprah Winfrey, uh, tweeted in response to George Clooney's pledge that, and, and I quote, George and Amal, I couldn't agree with you more. I am joining forces with you and I will match your $500,000 donation to March for Our Lives. These inspiring young people remind me of the Freedom Riders of the 60s who also said we've had enough and our voices will be heard. Wow. Um, I have no doubt in my mind that more people will come forward and pledge money to this, this gigantic effort and we will see change from this because that's what happens when you speak up and you are unrelenting in what you want. It's what democracy looks like. It's democracy, and we're seeing it, and we're feeling it. We're, it's amazing. It I, is. This is super positive, so that's why it's a positive point. Point, point. point. For, my, for my positive point, uh, this one is uh, space. I feel like I've done space theme before. I, I love space. That's why we keep you around. Uh, well, I'm going to launch off of this one and talk about the Ooh. Falcon Heavy launch. Did you just make a spaceship pun? Oh, yes, I did. Wow. For, for those of you who didn't know, uh, SpaceX launched the Falcon Heavy rocket, which has reusable parts. Basically, they were able to launch a rocket ship into space and then have it come back and land so they can use it again. And that's huge for space travel. And considering one of my life goals is to go to space, this is getting me one step closer to there. And I can't wait for that day. This is the first time I'm hearing that. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I just I think it'd be fun. Yeah. Okay. When's your birthday? No, uh, we'll talk later. We'll talk later. But that's been my positive point. Space travel is getting that much closer. What's your positive point? Let us know. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Well, this two weeks. Yeah. Eh, this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for joining us on Divided State Citizens. This has been Michael Weil. And I'm Henry Simon. And with that, the music will get louder. <laughs>